Denson is an award-winning cinematographer of international feature films, music videos, documentaries, and commercials. His recent credits include the feature film Ophelia starring Daisy Ridley and Naomi Watts, Measure of a Man with Donald Sutherland, Judy Greer, and Luke Wilson, the working title slash BBC2 series The Luminaries with Eva Green and Eve Hewson, Sky TV series Domino with Kasia Smutniak and Isabella Rossellini, UK TV series, Victoria Series 2. And finally, he was the DP of the reshoots of the Academy Award-winning Get Out, which included the tone-setting opening scene. Denson Baker, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you very much. So The Luminaries is a series that some of us are just now seeing. It's been in New Zealand already on television for a while. And it's so interesting because in the watching of that, I was reflecting, I don't know the research, uh, going through the archives, working with your director and production designer. I don't know if that made you reflect on the experiences uh, your ancestors may have had. You know, this talking about immigration and all. It's just very interesting to watch that. Mm, yeah, that is a really interesting question, and it certainly was. We did a lot of research on that project, and it was a, a lot of discovery for myself and for all of us, really. But one of the first things we did when we arrived in New Zealand to start pre-production was to travel to some of the actual locations where the story is set. One of them is Hokitika on the west coast of the South Island of New Zealand, and we discovered there's an absolutely fantastic, very small, but a little uh, museum that was full of so much incredible archival photography that um, you could not find searching the internet. And the imagery just inspired so many thoughts and ideas and, and design. And what was really interesting is it was so unique to New Zealand, the look of these photographs as well. People from all over the globe had traveled to, to Hokitika at this time. So it was a very cosmopolitan place that was right on this rugged, incredible coastline with mountains and jungles but they were bringing a little piece of their own cultures uh, into these places and trying to make it quite a, a booming town there. But it certainly, it did, because myself, I'm part Maori, so I've got a strong connection there, but my father has from Scottish uh, heritage and my mother's English uh, heritage. You know, it really did make me reflect on how we come to be in the places that we are and how our cultures evolve and develop. So it was, it was brilliant to do that kind of research. So you're like the bringing together of, say, the two um, principal characters. I don't want to say they're the only principal characters, but uh, you tell, you tell for those who haven't yet experienced it, you know, this, the story. Mm. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about the story is that all of the characters, particularly the two uh, principals, are all connected in various ways through astrology, planets aligning, uh, the sun and the moon. So that was a big element of the storytelling and was all very very much explored in the original material, the original book, which is a fantastic and very dense, incredible book, which was a challenge in itself to bring to the screen. But it's also one of those things that there's a lot of detail, which you need to bring to a series in very subtle ways. And so that became one of the um, challenges as a cinematographer was how can we hint at some of these aspects of their connections or their, you know, where, what they symbolize within the Zodiac. Are there ways we can do that that's, aren't so obvious, but they're, they're there. I mean, a lot of that is in the costume design or what the set design may have had within their spaces. But then there were little things that we would do with cinematography that would also enhance that a little bit more, whether it was choosing the right angle to 
feature some of those elements that costume and uh, production and design have put in there. Or one of the interesting things that the director, Claire McCarthy, had uh, suggested we do, Anna Weatherall, the lead character, who's the moon in all of the planetary alignments. There's a sheet that she suggested that we light her in ways that reflect the different moon phases that she's going through in the different uh, moments within her journey, within the story, which is, in theory, is a really, what a, what a really cool idea. It meant that if she was a, a waxing gibbous, we would put the her key light in a certain direction and have a shadow on her face so that she was lit like a the moon would be in that phase. And if she was a new moon, she'd be completely backlit and have only a little bit of fill, just like the, the moon phase itself. But that's a lot more challenging when you've got an actor who's also moving around a space and obviously their head's not going to stay still. But that was a nice place to start with each way that we would light a scene off. And and, uh, we actually asked uh, Eleanor, the writer, to put in the script for all of us what moon phase Anna was in with each um, scene so that we, uh, we had that as a reference throughout the production as well. I, I hadn't realized that I knew there was a lot of, you know, of course, a lot of subtext. And I realized that translation process of this 800 page long novel, which Eleanor Catton also wrote the screenplay. So it's great that she was able to extract what was most important. But I hadn't realized the special lighting. That's a great Easter egg for, you know, mm. love the novel. Like, oh, because I know they couldn't fit everything from those 800 pages. In no, absolutely not. Yeah. And it's one of those things that it's. It, it's not obvious to the audience, but when you know it's there, it's a, it's a nice little treat, we thought. Oh, no, it, it really is. Now I have to go back and, and see that. Uh, but, ah. um, <laughs> and so when cinematography is done so well and it's moving, it's so fluid, it's hard to, it's, it's, it doesn't stick out. The, the thought process, you know, is there, but it's something we experience, sub, this subliminal beauty, which you do so well. Mm. And also the way you photograph nature, and not just in the luminaries, but, and I'm thinking of Ophelia too. Uh, and I, I feel it very closely as a character. That's good. Yeah, well, I mean, you never want the cinematography to be dominating what the audience is, is taking in from watching, experiencing a show. You want it to be working on a subliminal level. You want it to be obviously beautiful and and be appropriate or not beautiful if that's what's appropriate. You certainly want it to stand out, but not to the point where you're not feeling like you're in the story or with the characters, because that really is what everyone is tuning in for, is to be taken on a journey with characters. And I think that's a big part of that journey is, to, is landscape is that you want to have a, a feeling of the, the surroundings and the environment that those characters are within, because that's how we feel that we can relate to the character. If we can feel like we're there or we've got a sense of the geography of the space around them, then we can relate to the, to the characters much more, even if it's a space that we've never actually been to or traveled, you get much more of a sense of being in that world, which I think is, is really important. And the big role of cinematography is, is world building. And I think one of the keys to world building is giving the audience a sense of the geography of the space that they're in and and the relationship of the characters within that space. And I want to be able to talk through your other film and television projects, but I just say while we're on the the luminaries and you also, we should say, you know, you're collaborating with your wife, maybe to discuss a little bit what that's like. Mm. Yeah, uh, we've done a, a, a lot a lot of projects together, Claire McCarthy and I. We actually met at film school many years ago in, in Australia. We were in different years. I was a year above Claire, but the first time I worked with her, I was I, she asked me to be Steadicam operator on one of her film school films. And we just, even in that short 
student film, we just started to see a, an interesting way of collaborating together. I really liked her, the way she was seeing things and she's a vis very visual director, but she's not prescriptive with how she sees things visually. And we've got a little son as well. You might've seen him pop up in the background. So he's part of our, our little crew as well. He, he gets in there and becomes a part of the whole filmmaking um, experience, which is which has been fun. He gets out on set. He's been in a few roles. He's been a camera assistant for me when we do test shoots and things like that. So we are a bit of a, a traveling circus, um, the three of us, and we're, we're, then our, the size of our circus expands depending on the size of the project as we travel around. And that's been a really interesting thing because it's a known fact that the film industry is a very tough industry to have relationships within and, you know, um, particularly when you're spending a lot of time traveling to different locations like the luminaries for example we were there for almost a year i guess from prep right through to the the, the last bit of editing that happened in, in new zealand before it moved to the uk which is a very long time if i wasn't working with my wife to be apart from my family but it means that my relationship with when working on one of claire's films is a little different to when I'm working with other directors and I do still work with a lot of other directors. Some, some people think, oh, I'm, I'm only Claire McCarthy's cinematographer, but that's, that's not the case. But I, I really appreciate it because we've worked together so many times, we've got a real shorthand on set. In fact, we don't often talk about specifics. Um, or maybe just a little, if there's something we need to you know, adjust or change, but we know each other so well, there's a lot that goes unsaid while we're on set actually working and she can really focus on her actors and I can focus on camera and lighting and what's happening there. So yes, yeah, it's, it's good working with a wife, I think. <laughs> no, that's a beautiful <laughs> trust. I collaborate with family too. And I, not all of my family, but I appreciate because it's almost like having more people. You mm. just know it. It's like telepathic. It must be at this stage. It is, yeah. Uh, no, that's really beautiful. You really know someone when you collaborate. I think there are a lot of people who are in relationships and they kind of know them when well, they collaborate on having a family. But if you're always working on something else, it, it's like when you make something together, you just really know each other's mind. Anyway, I don't have to tell you. Mm. You worked on many films. I mean, uh, that are not historical films. So which of those films are, are most important to you, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's a single one. I mean, I consider myself an artist as well as a technician. I think that as, a, as an artist, we evolve and change and go through different periods and different likes and dislikes. And I sort of see each project as a sort of a, a period of exploring a style of art, perhaps, and then can move on to another one. Or what's happened a lot recently is we... I, uh, I can't even remember what the first one that started that ball rolling but I started doing some period productions I've done a lot of period productions since including the luminaries that set in the 1860s but we did Ophelia which was we set during a sort of medieval period and I've done ancient Rome recently we just did a ancient Rome series which we shot in in Italy which comes out later this year and um, I've done Victorian England about to do a 1920s film that starts in a few weeks time and it's, I really enjoy doing period productions for a variety of reasons. And, and one of those is just exploring history in a way. And that I do, I've worked in documentary, which I feel more of that responsibility, but that responsibility when doing a period film and doesn't apply to all, all period films, but I feel like they often become the benchmark reference to some audiences as to what that period may have been like. So I feel that there is a responsibility that we should be truthful in whatever ways we can. So it's not strictly historically correct. There's always a bit of creative license and you want it to be an enjoyable story. 
But for me, like when I've been doing these period productions, some sort of the first things I start to consider or look at are what was the, the lighting in these people's worlds during that time. If it was uh, a medieval period, then it was you know, candles and, and oil lamps and gas light in the Victorian era. And so then that becomes part of the, the lighting sources that you're referencing when you're lighting it. I feel like you want to have a little bit of accuracy there, I suppose. In terms of favourite one, I don't know if I do have a favourite. I've enjoyed most of them, some of them more than others. Oh, yeah, it's okay. You... There's just, there's so many. And I want to help us choose mm. which ones to narrow on at the time. <laughs> I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about Domina or, I mean, you mentioned it. It's a project in Rome. It's starring um, Isabella Rossellini and just, it, I don't know if you can. <laughs> mm, yeah, among other people. Um, yes. It's only just now starting to get, I'm sure the trailer's coming out fairly soon from what I've heard and the, the series is now finished. I'm not sure what when it's going to be. It's, it's going to be Sky, where it's released first. But that was an interesting one because, uh, I mean, it's a TV series about Rome and the objective was to show Rome in a different way to what um, many of us have seen it. And it's it's called Domino and it is about the the women of Rome, particularly the the women behind the power and the interplay of, of politics and, and the, the influence that these women have who are very rarely represented in history and in, in cinema. As to whether the series did that as much justice as we've set out to do, we're yet to see, but it'll be interesting. I mean, Claire and I set up the first uh, three episodes and then other directors and DP teams finished off. Uh, well, they did different blocks after us. Yeah. It seems like the stories, I mean, I know that you're always looking at the scripts, but I see a common th- thread through Domina or Ophelia, which is, you know, Hamlet through uh, you know, for Ophelia's eyes and that exploring, you know, wonderful performances, including uh, Naomi Watts and Cl- Clive Owen and Daisy Ridley. But and then if you're going to Victoria, there's a lot of strong uh, female characters, or as I was experiencing, I mean, it, there, there's so many that you've worked on. It makes us consider societies. The way mm. it is and the way it it might be that, that that's something that I've got I've taken from a, n- a number of your films and I'm not even mentioning all of them like oranges and sunshine or whatever it just mm. picks apart if you would like to speak about this the, those elements of the stories that interested you mm. yeah I wouldn't say that I necessarily chose those productions purely for those reasons but they were certainly what did I did find exciting and interesting about them and I really do feel that you know, as as filmmakers, it's an opportunity to make a difference, have people look at uh, situations in a different way and, and represent people in cross sections of society, which we don't always get to see. Or if we do get to see, we're not necessarily as open or know the backstories of how people become the people that they are. And so I really do like exploring those themes. And I mean, the, the ways that we do that as a, in regards to cinematography, I guess, you know, there's, there's, a lot of conversations I'll have with directors where we will talk about what's the intention of a scene or of the film in general, or what are the you know, key moments within the character's journey that we really want to do something that's going to highlight it or not highlight it, but still have it present enough that the audience can take it in. So we do have a lot of conversations like that. And those, that will be that just from talking through the story arc of that, those characters and knowing when those key points are and thinking, well, that's a moment where we really want to hold a beat and make sure that it sits with an audience and not just let anything just wash by. And sometimes that can be as simple as just the, 
the framing on an actor and what, or what point within the story do we want to do our biggest close-up or whether it's a moment where we just want to see a character sitting within the space and give us a little reflective moment. A lot of that is the actor's craft and my job is just to know where's the good place to place the camera to really capture that. I've, I've always felt that a big responsibility of the cinematographer is also just to create a atmosphere and a feeling on set where an actor can step away from the concerns of the, the technology and just really feel that they're they've got the floor to give a, a great performance and to you know really let themselves go into a place and a space without feeling like they have to hit a mark or that they have to be in a particular position for the camera or for the lighting so I think it's being sensitive to those those things as well. I've heard a lot of great cinematographers say the same thing. A great performance is more important than beautiful cinematography because people aren't just there to look at pretty pictures. They want to feel the emotions and go on the journeys with the with the characters. So that's a big, important focus. That, but that yeah. trust is really, I mean, I don't even know how that works with all those close-ups. I mean, there's a choreography and a poetry to the human face, right? Mm. And how you how you get in there, I, I'm not just not sure how that works, <laughs> but it's something we feel like immediately. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of cinematographers talk about what different ways of shooting and the impact they have for an audience, but there's certainly a difference with a close-up on an actor. If you've set up the camera on a really long lens further back and you're zoomed in on someone's face, it has a very different feeling to if the camera is physically positioned in closer proximity to an actor on a wider lens and you're seeing more of the environment and you can, and it, just the fact that the camera's in that intimate space with the actor gives the audience a feeling of being within that same intimate space or whether the camera's shooting over someone's shoulder or whether it's in, in front of them inside the two people's shoulders has a, has a different feeling for an audience as well that you can feel that you're inhabiting that, that space with an actor. And you know, for some actors, that could be quite intrusive to have a, a big piece of glass looking at you in that close proximity, not usually that close, it's sort of this kind of distance if you are doing a big intimate close-up like that. So I think also you want to get to a point, I mean, I operate camera as well um, as director lighting and do the rest. So you want to get to a point that the, everyone feels so comfortable with each other that not seeing the camera as much or myself in that close proximity that they are. We're just at a, at a point of comfort that we you know, can let that go and not feel the intrusion of having a, having a lens poked in your face that close. But that is, that's certainly my, my preference, particularly for the protagonist. And if you want the audience to really be feeling or pondering what they're thinking is that, that the camera itself is in close proximity to, to the actor, yeah, rather than zoomed in a lot further back. Yes, yeah, so you definitely do convey that intimacy, and, um, and then there's this dreamy quality that I, I I really like as well. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't feel intrusive, and yeah, it's right there, so voyeuristically beautiful. Mm. It's just like a, a magic. Just getting a little bit more information, but she had told me that she had drawn the character's arc across the whole script because she knew as an actor, and this is what all actors for film and TV have to do, is that. You're, you're not shooting in sequence that you're going to have to drop into a scene on in week one that might be from later in the film to the end of the film the end of the you know, script might you might be shooting earlier on in the schedule and the start a bit later so you're not always getting to track it uh, by actually performing it you're having to have thought it through so that you you know where you are and and from what I remember she said she sort of gave her performance a 
an arc of where she was emotionally. And that's not just her process. A few actors have told me a similar thing because you want to know where is that moment where it's the, the biggest peak in your performance because you don't want to do that too early or, be, or go to a certain point within a scene. And then when it is that big moment, you've got nowhere else to go or you need to be bigger because you've already kind of peaked. So it's, it's a basic a little arc that a, that a character journey goes on. And it seemed quite obvious she described it to me. And a lot of writers will obviously do that too, have a have an arc of uh, when the different beats are within a script. But often the, the characters' emotional arcs aren't always exactly where those beats are that the writer will have. So they'll have their own. So then it made me think, well, maybe I should do the same thing as a cinematographer when, you know, when is the moment that the, the camera is quite quite still and, and it's calm, but when is it going to have more energy or when should it be a bit more kinetic when... When do you want those emotional moments where the camera soars, whether it's a drone shot or the crane pulls back? So when is the, the moment within the script that you want to do your biggest close-up? Because you don't want to be doing a whole bunch of close-ups throughout it. And then when there's that one moment where the director wants to have the really big close-up within the, the, the film, but you've already been shooting shots there, you can't go any closer. So you've kind of already used up that moment. So now when I look at a script, I, I start to look at it, you know, and it's been interesting just looking a lot more at the writer's process because I start to look at it and see what they've obviously thought about where those beats are, where those turning points are, what's, where's the end of the first act and what's the, the midpoint, the inciting incident. But to be able to identify those and to draw my own little cinematography emotional arc is interesting and then you start to talk about colors as well and whether there's a color shift that happens throughout the, the film does it the, the film we're doing now it's the idea is that it does start very desaturated and it, without being too obvious or heavy-handed but there's not a lot of color in the world but then color starts to be introduced and it's a very selective color palette the film we're doing is about an artist and she had a particular color palette that she worked within and so we start introducing those colors into her world and these are all things that are a, um, a discussion with the director, production designer, and costume designer, and makeup too, as well as cinematography about how we integrate those and when those those colours and moments coming. So it's not just adding coloured gels to the lighting; it's about uh, highlighting it within a shot that what the the um, production designer may be putting within a within a frame, or it might be just a little little tiny detail that the costume designer is dropping into it. So it's it's a real collaboration of, of um, how those those little details are included. And it's so fascinating as well. And I wonder how much, I mean, there's collaboration with people who are in the room and there's collaboration like beyond, um, I, and I think you have a more in, um, contact with that because of uh, working with Claire, but then maybe preemptively collaborating with who's the, going to score it, or I don't know how much you're thinking about rhythms as well or leaving space for that. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the editor's domain as to how that ends up playing out. But I mean, I started out shooting and then also directing music videos and I was cutting my own music. I mean, they're all low budget uh, music videos, usually with bands who were, who were friends, but it was such a great experience to just to look at how shots, where the shots cut well together when they don't cut well together about rhythm and pacing whether it's musical rhythm literally or it's emotional beats or whether it's you know, the rhythm of just how an audience tracks within a um, within a scene I mean it's because you know that you everyone knows about comic timing but there's also other emotional timing when you do want to hold on a shot or feel the weight of a shot or a weight of a moment within a performance before 
cutting out of it, giving enough time for the audience to to really feel a moment before moving on to the next one. Or sometimes it's even more impactful to cut it short before the audience gets to, you know, to have that moment of relief that maybe you don't want that. You want to have them feel like, oh, bang, we're right into the next uh, the next beat of the journey, and and that's that's a creative choice there as well. That must be frustrating too sometimes when you know you have the choice of being able to make those hard decisions, like when you have a beautiful footage, but for somehow it didn't serve the story. I can't, I can't <laughs> imagine what that's like. I mean, you still happens, have it. Though. happens all the time. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah, because often there'd be that big crane shot that we've done you know, 12 takes to perfect and trying to get it just right. And then then you watch the final film and the editor's gone and snipped it right right in the middle and cut it down because that's you know why they just felt they needed to move on but they, they, they just felt like it was too slow or for whatever reason my name is anya west Hughes and i am a student at occidental college studying urban and environmental policy and politics specifically i focus on the intersection of food policy and climate change i also write for the newspaper write for the Occidental Law Society's student-run newsletter, and run a personal blog, newsletter, and podcast. With the creative process, I am an associate podcast producer focusing on food, regenerative agriculture, and societal issues. Denson Baker's career has allowed him to pursue a wide variety of projects that cater to individual audiences. Nonetheless, he is able to captivate whatever audience he seeks to address with his highly individualized artistry. One of the artistic tools Baker discussed was his use of close-up filming on his actors, rather than zooming in from afar. His attention to detail goes unmatched, and establishing that connection with his actors does not go unnoticed when watching his films. What captured me the most about Baker's approach to filmmaking was his desire to familiarize his audience with film's physical settings. He not only wants to show the audience the space, but show them how the characters interact with it as well. This subtle yet persuasive approach to filmmaking helps persuade his audience of the character's persona more so than acting alone. As someone interested in pursuing a career in law or policy, I am constantly considering the best way to present information. A big part of persuading a government official or a judge is how the information is presented and through which angle. For example, the relationship low-income families have with their community can be presented through a variety of lenses. While unbiased statistics are an objective way to plain, explain significance, actually showing the impact of a prolonged lack of access to nutritious food is more persuasive. This is because people will automatically compare it to their own lives. Potential long-term effects include impaired cognitive development, stunted growth, and increased susceptibility to disease. These examples are a far more effective way of explaining how the quality of food access can affect many different areas of a person's life. While Baker's artistic choices do not serve this specific purpose in his art, I am still able to resonate with it because of the way that he gives his viewers the opportunity to connect with the film. His approach to filmmaking adds a layer of humanity, realism, and vulnerability to the films. What I love about cinematography uh, is you talk about it from a humble point of view, say I'm a technician, or, you know, I capture what's there, but it helps us in the audience understand something essential about the world. 
and characters about the greater world and, and how it works. And so you've worked in so many uh, countries beyond your native uh, New Zealand. I mean, you've worked across Europe, parts of Asia, you know, in Africa, India. So working in those countries and then coming back t- uh, to New Zealand to say work on the luminaries or other projects, what does that taught you about your own culture and what you appreciate about it. You were, you were speaking a little bit before about your mixed uh, heritage, uh, Maori and European descendant. And just, just what is it like? Uh, we look up so much to New Zealand and the way the society is organized. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And it's one I've certainly thought, pondered often about. I think the more I travel, the more I work in other countries, the more I sort of don't see borders and uh, and nations in the same way. It just it feels like one planet and different shooting locations, different parts of the world. Uh, but they've all got their own governments and their own cultures and their own experiences. But for me, it does feel like one world. But there is something about going back to New Zealand which I do feel is home. Well, actually, it's an interesting thing for me because I uh, like I, I was born in New Zealand, but have an Australian mother and. We moved between the two places, and and because of that moving since a young age, I think I was five when we first um, moved away, and then we'd come back. That I've never really quite ever had that sense of that's my home country. Eventually, like we moved to the states. We lived in in California for a while, and then been living in the UK for some time now. And whenever we've done a project, it's usually up to a, a year that we're in there. We've just had a year in. Italy and before that we were in the Czech Republic for a year. I don't feel like there is one cultural identity for myself as a person. I feel like I'm floating between them all and I feel like I can adapt to them and be a part of them all. I don't speak a lot of languages, I'd love to, but I've worked in a lot of cultures where English is not the first language. And the thing that I found really interesting is that, particularly with the crews that I've been working with, is that there is a common language amongst them. film crews as well as a common language amongst artists as well that we all share and can understand and when it comes to my work it is an art form but it, it also requires a lot of knowledge in, in technology and tools. I do find that my communication is often more about the creative outcome than necessarily the technical aspect of what needs to be done. And I think that comes because as a director of photography I've got a, a team around me and I always get an opportunity to always hand pick hopefully the best team out there and they know what they're doing in each of the departments. So more of my direction would be to create the outcome rather than tell them how to do their job. And I find that kind of communication, whether it's English, but it still translates uh, quite well, I find across all the different cultures. And I find that film crews aren't that different. I mean, I've been fortunate that a lot of the film crews I have worked on other international productions or American productions. There's different systems and there's different ways of working, but they're all pretty subtle. But it's just that sometimes the grips or the gaffers handle certain bits of equipment that sometimes there's talking to different uh, departments. Um, so, but that's very subtle, really. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but... What's, it's, yeah. no, it's a very interesting aspect of all of that collaboration. And I guess what, it's interesting that you mentioned the word One Planet because we have a parallel podcast. That's why I've been asking about this. We're doing some projects in the run-up for the UN Conference for Climate Change. And one way that... Um, when I was watching the luminaries, I was thinking about oh, how systems were set, being set up then in terms of society, you know, societal structures. But I think that we... 
I mean, around the world, we admire the way New Zealand has dealt with uh, the COVID crisis, but also how you preserve and protect the natural world and respect for indigenous cultures. I know that's a bit of a big question, but it's something I feel that we can all learn from. Well, it's interesting for me because growing up and just that being the normal, it's always, well, for me, that is the normal and it's surprising that anyone else would think any other way. Why wouldn't you want to preserve the, the beauty of the, 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 the country around you? I mean, I think New Zealand is also a multicultural place too. There's, um, particularly I'm from Auckland, which is a, a big city, so it has a lot of influence from, from all parts of the world. But I think they are often quite like-minded people who come together, perhaps. I don't know that they're attracted to moving to New Zealand and often it is because of the natural landscape and the and the desire to preserve it. I don't know why you wouldn't want to do operate any other way. I mean, New Zealand, they have, they have it, it's, they've been one of the first countries to have female prime ministers. So, you know, not just Jacinda Ardern, but I mean, she should be the, the third female prime minister the country's had. And it's got a long history of, of being led by strong women with a vision and who are great leaders and I mean, why, why wouldn't you? Yes, and of course, there's the first uh, country, I believe, to adopt suffrage for women and so, and just way in advance of many other countries. It's always been surprising for me. Yeah, I mean, because it was interesting doing Domino, we touched on earlier, but that was Olivia Drusilla, who's the Empress of Rome. She was credited with giving the right to vote for women, but it only lasted a very short period after her death. Her son, who became the emperor, soon changed that. So, yeah, it's interesting, the history of cultures and power plays there. Yes, and, and that's so as you go through his different stages in uh, history, you can really analyze what worked or where we sadly took the wrong turn or didn't adopt it. I want to, although I know that, of course, you have a claim for these historical dramas, let's not forget that you worked on Get Out or A Measure of Man or American Summer. There's two times for that film. But just speak about yeah, yeah, some of the more contemporary dramas you have shaped. Yeah, well, um, interesting you, you mentioned Get Out. With, with that film, I wasn't the main cinematographer on that. It was actually a very good friend of mine, Toby uh, Oliver, shot to Get Out. And a really interesting thing with Blumhouse, who I guess you could say the people behind it, Blumhouse have a, a great reputation for making really quality films for quite low budgets. And part of that approach is that, and this is what happened with Get Out, is that they had a specific budget, wasn't big, but felt it was enough to, to make the project that it needed to be and then once it was in the edit and they could see that uh, it was going to be a great film but there was still a few things from doing test screenings thought they could improve upon or things that because it was a tight schedule they hadn't quite achieved them in the way that they wanted to then Blumhouse gave them the opportunity to go and do reshoots and to reshoot the beginning the ending and a few other shots throughout the production and because Toby, the cinematographer, was unable to do those reshoots because he had been hired to do the next production, he couldn't come back and finish it. So he asked me to come in and do those, those reshoots, which was an incredible opportunity. At that point, you know, Get Out was just a low-budget film that Jordan Peele, who I knew from Key and Peele, and he wasn't the big, amazing success story that he is now. But um, it was a brilliant script, and I saw what the edit, and it was already fantastic, and I could see what he was wanting to do. And I had really good meetings with him, and it was just a, such a great opportunity for a director to have the ability to revisit things that had already shot to, or, and to 
I mean, I don't know if you saw that. They, they did release what the original ending was as an alternative uh, ending edit. It was quite a different tone to the ending that was originally created. So that was three shot as well. So I came in and I didn't come in to put my stamp on it and do the, the Denton Baker cinematography show. It was being you know, accurate to what had already been established in that film and to honor the, the work and the style that Toby had already set up. Get Out is what a, what a brilliant film and what a great a great statement that it's making. But then other films, yeah, like I did Measure of a Man, you mentioned, that was also a period film, interestingly. I mean, it's set in 1976. Um, yeah. It's set in upstate New York, 1976 being the bicentennial year for America as well, so it had a uh, very specific historic and cultural reference there, which we wanted to um, incorporate. Yeah, that was interesting, because it was a, a, a English director, a New Zealand Australian cinematographer doing what is interesting that it got also titled American Summer because it was it is sort of a quintessential 70s summer movie was the idea based on a book that was originally published in the 50s but sort of a nostalgic look back on high school uh, summer holidays uh, on the lakes and I really wanted to capture that feeling I didn't even travel to the US until later in life so but all of my uh, knowledge of it was based on the movies that I'd seen and Jim and I said we wanted it to feel like one of those movies from that era a little touch of Stand By Me that, which was, was about that era not necessarily shot in that era there's a few other ones as well that we, we thought you know, that's the sort of the tone and the feel and the that we want to capture and that became fun and the actually interesting thing I did there too was as a cinematography you don't necessarily always want to just do your style and the way that you've worked and done things previously you want to try new things or do what's appropriate to the script and this being a very American story I thought well I'm going to try the, 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 a, a different style of lighting and shooting with this and I hired a, uh, a gaffer which honestly gaffer is a head lighting technician and they're, they're more handling all the doing the, the actual placement of, uh, of the lighting units and running cables and, and setting up uh, the lighting based on the direction that I would give more on, I would talk more about the quality of light or the amount of light they would do, they would talk more specifically about what unit of light and what, you know, what piece of hardware. So I had this great gaffer, Mike Moyer, Moish is his, um, is his name, who has, he's been shooting since, since the 70s and he's done some really great classic uh, American films. So my approach was, well, let, I want to learn from Moish and how he would like these scenes or when he's worked with other cinematographers shooting these big Hollywood films, like what was his approach? I mean, I've always been selective and sort of, as long as it worked with what we wanted to do, we'd do it. But it, he just sort of introduced me to a different approach than what I would have normally just instinctually perhaps gone with. And it was a great learning experience that way as well. And that's interesting how you would then, because he would have been working with film then. I'm not always as sensitive to it because you can approximate it in so many ways now. Yeah, well, I started in film. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I started out even like clapper loading and like as an assistant loading film for other cinematographers. I went to art school where we were shooting from black and white stills and doing our own processing to shooting 16 millimeter for my first short films and and then that film school was 35 millimeter. I shot uh, a couple of features, and my first feature was on 16 millimeter, and I did uh, a couple of feature films on 35 millimeter, and, and absolutely loved working with film. But I was very much an early adopter of, uh, of digital technology as it came about, and certainly embraced it, and, and loved it. I feel a little bit of nostalgia for 
formats of film, but I don't really miss it. Yeah, I was speaking to Stuart Dreiberg, and he loves film, but obviously, yeah, you're probably friends, are you? Not to be. We've been, we've been in touch, we've, we've spoken, uh, we've exchanged emails, and you know, given me some good, good tips and helped with some advice, so I've never actually met him face to face. I just can't imagine. I mean, for editors, of course, I guess they love digital, but I don't know the things that one loses, and I don't know what you do to approximate that effect. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, that's interesting because I've just, for this next production that I'm doing, I've just done a series of camera tests where uh, we're shooting digital, we're shooting with Ari Alexa digital cameras, which I've used a lot. But we tested a variety of vintage lenses just to have a look at the different qualities and what that, that brings. So we're shooting this um, project on lenses which were first made in the 1970s and have a quality and characteristics that are, and a softness. They're the same lenses that have been used on... 35mm feature film since that era, you do see that the lenses themselves add a quality that is quite cinematic. You're putting a digital camera on the back of what was a, a made-for-film piece of glass. They use various filters, lowering the contrast and, and softening the image that I felt feel gives a little bit of a filmic quality as well. Technically, you could say that there's a certain way that film responds to light and the contrast and the, the way that highlights appear on film is different to digital. I think we can certainly look scientifically at what the difference of, of how things are captured, but there's, a, there's also a, um, a quality that can't necessarily be broken down scientifically that film does do, that, that, those, that film purists still really love. And there is an organic quality, I guess some people would say, because it is a a light sensitive emulsion in each frame its own little piece of film rather than digital sensors interpreting the light it's essentially light being it's being absorbed it's reacting chemically to create an image it's not made up of pixels it's made up of little light sensitive pieces of grain which makes it quite interesting but yeah I did hear one cinematographer saying that <clears throat> he felt that film doesn't just absorb the light but it's actually capturing the the feeling, the emotion, the atmosphere, and just the the moment in a way that a digital is just interpreting it rather than capturing it, I suppose, which I found was a really fascinating um, thought. I'm a painter, so my understanding is always through that lens, or writing, I also enjoy, but I think it's wonderful how you have all these new ways that can approximate film, but something about when an image is a little blurred that our imagination steps in, I know that you have to work harder for the things that film could do, just like in a, just by its quality, by its nature. Yeah, that's interesting. Because there'd be similar things within cinematography there too. I mean, I know I don't know if it's exactly similar, similar, but something that I often um, think and talk about is it's often what you're hinting at that's outside of the frame that builds the world as well. I mean, and and sometimes it is. Yeah, that's that suggestion of a bigger world or things that are a bit blurred or that aren't um, necessarily up the front that expands the the image to more than just what is up front in the frame i mean that can be as simple as when you're shooting a crowd scene that uh, if you don't often with shoot with one of create a crowd that looks like you had hundreds of people but maybe we've only got 20 so just by putting a little edge of someone in a frame or to show a room where you see a little something happening in there a person moving in the right in the depth of the back room it just hints that there's more to that world that's happening in the depth or off to the edges of the frame than is actually there. That's creating a bit of an illusion of a, of a bigger world. And then sound takes that even further, they create more outside of 
outside of that. It's interesting because I came from a, I wouldn't say a painting background, but I did go to art school. We did learn painting and, and art history and, and graphic design and typography. And, and I absolutely loved the idea of painting, loved looking at paintings, but it wasn't something that I was able to master. I'd, I've always felt the frustration that I had a vision in my mind for what I'd like my artwork to appear like, and I just could never, it just wouldn't translate down the brush to the canvas through me which I felt that allowed me to, to do that. As a, as a filmmaker, you're not just a singular artist, you rely on a whole collaboration and there's so many other elements that come together, but there is an immediacy and just the more that I feel like I'm mastering my craft, the more I feel like I can you know, deliver what my imagination conjures up. Yes, I I find painting frustrating for that reason because I love talking and listening to people, to people and so it, it is have those limitations and I can't put music and so many things so I do feel that film is superior and the, the collaborative arts have that advantage that speak to all and we shouldn't neglect to say that having that in your background of painting you've also been inspired by paintings I'm th- Ophelia and I'm sure in the luminaries and, and others where you're drawing upon that lineage. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing. Like with Luminaries, there was great archival photography that we could look at to get ideas at the time, but with Ophelia, there is no photography at that period, so I was turning to paintings, and we were lucky to be shooting that in the Czech Republic, so we went to some fantastic museums and art galleries in Prague, and we were able to just absorb some of that. And also, Ophelia has been the subject of, um, of, of painters for... Um, you know, for, for so long, like the pre-Raphaelites uh, particularly. So we, we hinted that a little bit as well. So there were moments that we had looked at particular and famous representations of Ophelia in painting and wanted to not necessarily recreate those paintings, but, but hint at those iconic images that people know. And I like to do that too. I mean, and, and I was going to art school and doing art history. So that's where I first started to really look at composition and the choices that were made by the great masters of, of, of the of painting and which were a really interesting exercise that we did at a film school where the cinematography teacher had the cinematography and design students collaborate together and recreate a painting not just the positioning of a still life or a, or of a, of a of a human form within the frame but also just have a look at how the painters have captured light and that was such an interesting exercise because there is so much that as a painter you can manipulate things and do do things that aren't necessarily as easy to achieve in, in a real world example. But there's also times where you saw that a, a, a highlight in the painting was in a different place to where the light was falling on objects and then you'd start to think was that just the artistic choice or was it that they had started painting and the sun had moved and then they'd had done that little highlight when the sun was in a different position to where they had uh, had done where, where when they were painting the areas of, uh, of where the, the light was on an object. So it's really good breaking down um, a painting into all those different elements and all those decisions that an, an artist would make when, when doing that. And then that's also something that when with so many other films, when so many films that I've done, you start to look at things that you can draw inspiration from, not necessarily replicate but to homage at times as well. Ophelia particularly we did look at a lot of paintings and painters that we liked but there's a number of shots and sequences where there's just a little hint at elements or composition or staging of scenes that are referencing paintings. In fact there's, there's so many I think I've forgotten what some of them were. 
Yes, not just the uh, works of art that appear that you would say, oh, that's a tapestry, that's a work of art, or this whole tableau has this echo, but just the walls themselves, the way they're painted, they're, they're paintings themselves. So there was just a lot of rich textures that you capture in many of your films and television work. Um, I was wondering what you thought about your responsibility as a cinematographer. I was just appreciating that what film and television has given me is as a as a viewer and I think it's taught me about the world and we were saying a bit before about to notice things and and to understand the motivations and the subtext behind actions I'm thinking in terms of today with COVID film and television has educated us they don't understand how I don't know the world moves by so quickly and when one is experiencing one's own life you can't always analyze it but being able to watch it in film and television other scenarios and it helps me understand how to be in the world but now I think that during COVID how do you say you're allowing people to live their lives does that make sense because we are not having as many human contacts so we're living through your art form more so than usual mm. yeah absolutely and I'm doing the same being able to catch up on watching a whole lot of the films that I missed out on because I missed that day at film school uh, and haven't seen some of those, those great classics as well. Living moments of the past through what's been captured in films, which is really interesting. But it's also changing the art form in how we can make productions to start a film in a couple of weeks' time. And you know, there's all COVID protocols about how you can shoot, how many people you can have within a location, how many extras we can have. So there's a, a lot more restrictions with locations, but also just closing down streets because well, I'm in the UK and there's still a lockdown going here. So even conversations about can we clear the cars out of the street is, is not even, doesn't seem to be something we can do because it's a lockdown. We can't go door knocking and asking people to be moving vehicles. To, I mean, that's what we're working on. Hopefully they'll allow that to happen. But it, it's now meaning we're just, we're not getting to necessarily choose our locations based on what's ideal, what works, but also what, you know, can work around the COVID protocols, which is interesting. And then that starts to twist what the reality would be like in the world that this story is actually set, because it's obviously not set in COVID period. And there would be a very different sort of interactions that extras and people would have if we're having to follow these protocols, if you know what I mean. I think that that's what drew me to becoming a cinematographer was that I just, I loved being absorbed in a story, in a film, and being feeling like I'm being transported away to a, another incredible world and taken on a journey. And that's, that's certainly what I would always aspire to do with every production that I, that I do is really create that a feeling of a world that an audience can immerse themselves in and enjoy inhabiting that world for a period. And many of your early films, well, you work less now on documentary and maybe just discuss some of those. I mean, they're really interesting from Aborigine stories to, I mean, it took you around the world as, as well. What drew you to some of those stories and, and a little bit about the transitioning into being more involved in film and television? Yeah, well, for me, I sort of moved between documentary and, I mean, there was a period there for, in, I think, happens to most people's careers where you're not on a trajectory that's so clear and you do sometimes take work because it's an interesting opportunity or you take work because it's going to lead on to the next biggest thing or you just need to pay the bills or, and you don't have enough money for next month's rent so mm -hmm. you take a, a job for those reasons as well but the documentaries that I've 
been involved in. Some of them I've absolutely loved and have been an education and have been a privilege to be a part of. And then some of them have been ones which I've taken away new techniques or learnt from ways of operating a camera in a, a observational documentary approach is uh, something which is really interesting to then apply to a feature film drama as well to create a feeling of the immediacy and of something occurring uh, you know, in, right there in front of you and the camera is responding to an action in the same way that a, a documentary camera person would. I think that's a really um, interesting thing to take on board. And the other thing, there's a number of, of great cinematographers who are doing big feature films, like Roger Deakins is the example who often talks about his experience doing uh, documentaries. And I feel like it's been the same for myself, that you do learn to think really fast, think on your feet, look at what's the good light, think about the what's a good angle to capture something but then you start to also think about how this is going to be edited you're having to make decisions because it's not being directed and you're not getting a second chance to have a second take obviously so you do start to think about how you're representing the subjects within your documentary and just how much influence the camera angle the camera lens size those choices that you make how they are going to influence the way an audience perceives those characters whether they empathize with them or whether they're what their relationship is to that that person. When you start applying those same thoughts and techniques to to a drama, you can start to have those similar kind of influences. It's, um, I think it's, it's great as a cinematographer to have that experience of thinking that way, which is it's, that, that, a lot of that is the director's realm. But to come from that as a camera person and be able to bring that as well, whether it's offering it up as an idea or then it just also becomes your essential. Uh, often I find that in a placing the camera and not somewhere that's been heavily conceived or fall through a lot but it's just, just been where it just feels right for the blocking of the scene for what the actors are doing or what looks nice in the background what's a good uh, or, or appropriate for the background or is there an element in there in, of the character's world that you want to capture within that scene that's going to communicate something about that, that character so that comes from documentary even just in the most basic form I've done interviews with subjects and the director says well what can we dress in their background and you don't want to just put a random hot plant. It just it happens to be at hand. You want to put something into their into their shot that's relevant to them as a character, as a person. Whether if they're an authority on something, you want to back that up or give them that give them that authority stance and make make choices that way. So I think you bring that across to both forms. Yeah. I think that that's great because it is interesting because that's what's imbues your period dramas as well with something that that makes it feel like contemporary or whatever. And there must be something about that spontaneous vitality that you get from making uh, documentaries. So I think it's uh, just to, to round up, you've really spoken about so many things and this is an educational initiative. So we do ask about the kind of world we're leaving for the future generations as you think back on your career through documentaries and uh, narrative filmmaking what do you think is important for young people to know preserve and remember mm. well i mean that's such a big question there's, there's so many different ways you could go down there i've got a son now he's he's nine so i'm often thinking about you know, what kind of world i want him to be living in and also thinking a lot about how I want him to perceive the world as well, because I think it's very easy for us to see there is so many negatives that if you focus on, then they become the world that we're we're in. But for me, it's really focusing on what what is beautiful and special, and really wanting to um, 
continue that and to preserve that and to share that and to have people appreciate it as much as, uh, as I do. And I think, as we've said, with the, the, the leadership of New Zealand as a, as a place that wants to preserve its, its natural resources and its natural... Um, for me, that's the, the biggest thing that I'd want to see, that we're not creating such a, a footprint on the earth that we're losing all of that, that beauty. It's something that I have seen when traveling to different locations when we want to shoot a period film or just a film that's set in landscape and nature. Those opportunities and those places to go to are becoming less and less available. We shot Ophelia in the Czech Republic and we had to drive so far just to find a natural piece of forest. In fact, it was, it was too far for us to even find one that was even sort of an untouched forest. We had to find places that, you know, weren't really the ideal. It was shocking to me that such a, a large area of land didn't have any natural or old growth forests remaining within it. So I think those are the kind of things which it's interesting too because someone was having a conversation with someone and sort of jumping all over the place but the thing about David Attenborough's documentaries which I absolutely love and think it's so valuable and incredible that we have those records and, those, and to see those images and to inspire us as to what we want to preserve but in this most recent one, that world isn't necessarily there anymore. Or what we are seeing in there is just such a selected portion of it. A lot of us think, oh, but, you know, we're, we're going to be fine. But if you've seen all that amazing landscape that still exists, it's still out there. But it's what a camera does in a documentary is just it's, it's really selective of what it does show you. That's the thing that I find the cinematographer when we're picking these locations were often creating this little window of the world and not uh, really showing what the greater picture of where we are and what's around us is and often it is uh, there's devastation or uh, car parks and rubbish dumps that are we're all excluding out of the frame just to create this little window of beauty and it's a shame that those little windows of beauty are, are fewer and far between and we have to frame out so much in this world. Thank you for so much for the windows of beauty, Denson Baker, that you have given us on windows onto different time periods, different cultures, different perspectives, these portraits of strong uh, female characters, and your important documentary work as well. You've done many things, and it's hard to compress, as you know, but you gave a perspective for lots of people, both fascinated in becoming cinematic storytellers, but also... Others are just fascinating in uh, creativity and what we, what we can do each do. I thank you for your important contributions to cinematic storytelling and for adding your voice to the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Anya Westhues. The digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or to submit your own creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.